This podcast and others are brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. You can receive all new content offered by EverythingVoluntary.com in your email inbox every single weekday for free. Visit Digest.EverythingVoluntary.com to subscribe. So, the question is, uh, what is the status of economic propositions? What kind of uh, propositions are they? Are they like propositions in natural sciences? Are they like propositions in in mathematics? Uh, What is their nature? Well, I'm going to introduce some terminology here. First of all, there's a distinction between a priori and a posteriori, or you can pronounce it a priori and a posteriori. Um, My background's in in classics, so I tend to pronounce it the more authentically Latin way. Um, Literally, those two words mean, those two phrases mean on the basis of what is prior and on the basis of what is posterior. Like many Latin shortcuts, it leaves out the crucial bit, which is prior and posterior to what? Well, in this case, to experience. To say that something is a priori is to say that something knowable prior to experience, and to say that it's a posteriori is to say that it's knowable posterior to experience. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that if something is knowable a priori, that means it's knowable prior to having any experience at all. Now, there have been some philosophers who believed in, in that sort of thing. The uh, 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 the, um, uh, the great Arabic philosopher Ibn Sina thought that if you raise someone in a sensory deprivation tank and they never had any sensory input whatsoever, they would be able logically to deduce their own existence and the existence of God and various other things. Uh, but you don't have to believe that to believe in the a priori. To say that something is a priori doesn't mean that you can know it without having any experience at all. Uh, it means you can know it without having, you know, without you know, experientially testing that particular thing. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, if you know that all bachelors are unmarried, you don't know that by doing surveys of bachelors. You don't have to go and you know, interview all the bachelors and find out that they're all unmarried. Uh, you know, so, in that sense, you can know that bachelors are unmarried a priori. But again, that doesn't mean that you know bachelors are unmarried prior to having any experiences at all. It's not as though, you know... Uh, if you've been raised in a separate sensory deprivation tank, you'd be able to come up with the idea that all bachelors are unmarried. Probably not. Uh, the term a priori is often paired with the term apodictic, uh, which uh, comes from Greek, not Latin. It means based on demonstration, uh, literally, and it's used for things that are necessarily true or demonstratively certain. Uh, you may remember that uh, Dr. Rako uh, last night mentioned that uh, Mises sometimes had what they call an apodictic tone in his deliverances, and Mises also was fond of the term apodictic. Uh, examples of a priori or apodictic statements are ones in logic and mathematics. You know, so, for example, if you know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, you don't know that by doing empirical tests. You don't have to go and investigate all the cases of 2 and 2 that you find in the world and see if they all make 4. Uh, that's uh, not necessary. You know it uh, independent of that kind of experience. You know it simply as a conceptual truth. Uh, things that are a posteriori are things known on the basis of experience, things we have to do some kind of empirical testing in order to know that they're true. This is true, for example, of most of the propositions of natural science. Uh, you know, How do we know that... Uh, uh, you know, how do we know what the orbits of the planets are? Or uh, how do we know uh, which two chemicals when mixed together will produce a certain third chemical? Well, we don't know that sort of thing a priori. You can't just think about the concepts of hydrogen and oxygen and just realize that they would naturally combine to produce water. You have to find that out in the lab. You formulate hypotheses. You test them. And so uh, the natural sciences are empirical or a posteriori sciences, the ones where most of the information in them uh, is uh, information that comes through empirical testing. So the question is, 
Which is economics more like? Is economics more like the a priori sciences of uh, logic and mathematics, where you figure things out simply through conceptual truths and doing reasoning? Or is it more like empirical sciences, where you have to find out the relationships among these things uh, through empirical testing? Well, the Austrian view, or at least the view that's dominant in the Austrian tradition, is that economics is a priori. And uh, the term that's often used in the Austrian tradition is praxeology. Praxeology is the, the study of praxis, or a, which is a Greek word for action. So praxeology is the science of human action, but it's used to mean the a priori science of human action. Praxeology is the study of those aspects of human action that can be grasped a priori. Uh, you know, this doesn't mean that everything about human action is noble a priori, uh, but there's a certain body of truths about human action that can be grasped as conceptual truths uh, a priori. However, this view that's dominant in Austrian circles is not the view that's dominant throughout most of the economics profession. For most economists nowadays, the assumption is that economics is a posteriori, that economics is like the natural sciences in that the... Uh, the laws that govern human action and the relations between different kinds of, of events in human action is something that you have to find out through empirical testing, through doing statistics uh, or uh, whatever, that you formulate hypotheses, you test them, and so on. Now, when I say that that theory is the one that's dominant in the economics profession, what I mean is it's dominant in theory. It's not necessarily dominant in practice. At any rate, one charge that Austrians often make against the economics mainstream is well, look, in actual practice, uh, you know, mainstream economists, or at least the, you know, the ones that we think best of, tend to be praxeologists, or at least semi-praxeologists, in their actual conduct. That when they're actually analyzing things, they reason in the way, or at least something like in the way that Austrians recommend. But then their official pronouncements will often be uh, inconsistent with that. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's a story that... Uh, Walter Block likes to tell about uh, when he was um, doing research under uh, Gary Becker at Chicago and uh, found evidence, apparently he was doing research on the minimum wage and found evidence that seemed to suggest that, uh, that uh, uh, minimum wage laws uh, did not have an adverse effect on employment. And uh, as Walter likes to say, uh, Becker uh, told him, well, you must have gotten something wrong, go back and do it again. Now, of course, Becker's official position is a, uh, you know, is that economics is an empirical science, you can't know these things by reasoning. And so you might think that what Becker should have concluded is, wow, uh, you know, my student here has discovered some new empirical truth. But instead, he thought, well, no, uh, you know, this doesn't fit in with, with our understanding, there must be some sort of mistake, uh, go back and keep trying. Um, and so this was, you know, from the standpoint of Becker's own methodology, it seems like this might be a feeling on his part, but from the standard of, standards of Austrian methodology, it's, you know, yes, he was uh, taking the right approach in his practice, even if not uh, in his theory. Now, I say that the, the view that, that uh, economic methodology is more like the natural sciences, that it's empirical and so forth, I say that that's dominant in economics profession today. It wasn't always so. If you look back in the history of, uh, of economics, uh, you'll find that, for example, uh, the French economist Jean-Baptiste Say advocated a method you know, very much like uh, uh, praxeology uh, in terms of conceptual truths about action. English economists like Nassau Sr. and John Cairns did likewise. Um, and uh, in the early part of uh, the 20th century, the most popular uh, book on economic methodology in the English-speaking world was Lionel Robbins' book, uh, Nature and, uh, Essay on the Nature and Significance of Economic Science, uh, which, um, uh, which the Mises Institute has just recently uh, re-released the first edition of. The first edition is uh, you know, somewhat better than the, the second, somewhat more purely praxeological. Uh, I sometimes say that uh, some intellectuals are like wine and improve with age, and others are like beer and get worse. Robbins was like, was more like beer. His second 
you know, the second edition wasn't as praxeological as the first, and eventually went off and became a Keynesian. Um, so there was a decline there, but the, you know, the early vintage is the, uh, a good one. Um, uh, and I've got Robbins listed there at the top of a list of various uh, Austrian-style uh, approaches to methodology. Not, not all these people agree with each other and everything, um, but uh, there's various... Uh, approaches to um, Austrian a priorism. Uh, and Robbins himself was at least a semi-Austrian at, at that time. He was uh, influenced by Mises. So there was a time when, uh, when uh, the economics profession was not just implicitly but explicitly, or at least semi-explicitly, praxeological, and its ordinary conduct was more implicitly praxeological than it is uh, today. Uh, so how did that change? Well, one of the big influences, and I'll be talking more about this in one of my later lectures, but one of the big influences was a school of thought called logical positivism, which uh, emerged in uh, Vienna in the early part of the 20th century uh, with an organization called the Vienna Circle, or sometimes the Schlick Circle, named after Moritz Schlick, one of its founders. Um, and, uh, and Mises was well aware of this, of this group because his own brother, Richard von Mises, uh, was part of the Vienna Circle. He wasn't actually part of the Vienna part of the Vienna Circle. He was part of the Berlin branch of the Vienna Circle. And, you know, so a Vienna Circle can have a Berlin branch. It's not including geometry. Um, uh, but, uh, and also um, Felix Kaufmann, uh, was a, uh, who was the, the author of the lyrics of the Mises songs that uh, have sometimes been performed here. Uh, he was, and uh, you may have seen uh, David Gordon playing the role of Felix Kaufmann in the, in the Mises musical. Uh, anyway, he was a member of both uh, the Mises Circle and the Vienna Circle. So, uh, you know, they sort of moved in the same uh, intellectual, well, circles. Um, anyway, the, the Vienna Circle, or logical positivism, was immensely influential in both philosophy and in the social sciences, it's much less influential in philosophy nowadays. I mean, it still maintains certain influences, but it is, uh, it is, um, uh, you know, for the most part, at least in its original form, pretty much passe in philosophy. Uh, when I was a grad student at Cornell, uh, they had a uh, the department had a picnic, which they called the annual logical positivism memorial picnic. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it's still, as is often the case. Uh, it's still very influential in uh, in economics and in social science, and for that matter, natural science departments more broadly. Uh, you know, I often find when I go from a philosophy department to other departments that other departments there believe uh, you know, whatever theories of, of knowledge were popular in philosophy departments about 60 years ago, uh, which is when the leading people in those departments uh, uh, were just getting started. Um, so, uh, you know, what's the ideological positivism? Well, I'll be saying more about it in a later lecture, but here's the crucial claim the logical positivists made that was the most influential thing. They thought that all statements come in two forms. Either they are analytic, by which they meant that they are um, things that are true by definition, which they took to mean that those statements are merely about language, not about the world. Or if they're about the world, then they're empirical. They're claims we know through experience that can become false. So they thought that all the statements of logic and mathematics were analytical statements, and that that meant that they weren't really about the world. So they would say the statement like, uh, all bachelors are unmarried, or two plus two equals four, uh, they would say that those statements are not about bachelors or about two and four. They're about you know, all bachelors are unmarried. Is telling you something about the word bachelor and how the word bachelor is used. It's not telling you something about actual bachelors. And they thought that uh, likewise that statements like two plus two equals four uh, were just simply telling you something about how the words two and four are used, but they weren't actually telling you facts about the world. Now philosophers before them had actually drawn a distinction between the bachelor-type sentences and the two plus two equals four-type sentences. Uh, 
you know, for example, Immanuel Kant had said, yeah, okay, that's true for, that sort of thing is true for Bachelor. Bachelor doesn't really have any content about the world. But it's not true for 2, for two plus 2 equals 4. Bachelors are unmarried is true by definition, but 2 plus 2 equals 4 isn't true by definition, because if it is, what's the definition? Definition of what? Is, it the de is 2 plus 2 equals 4, if you say that's true by definition, do you mean that that's the definition of 4? Is 2 plus 2? Well, then 3 plus 1 equals 4 couldn't be true by definition if the definition is 2 plus 2 is 4. Um, but anyway, the, uh, those distinctions, the, the positivists discarded and said, no, all the, all the things that we call conceptual truths, they're all merely statements about language use. And the things that aren't conceptual truths are all empirical and they're testable. And uh, therefore, there can't be any you know, necessary or conceptual truths that are really about the real world. If it's about the real world, then it's, then it's uh, merely empirical and subject to refutation. And if it's not empirical, if it's not subject to refutation, then it's not really about reality. It's just about our, our linguistic conventions. Uh, one upshot of this is that they saw explanation primarily as a matter of prediction. Uh, you know, uh, to explain something is simply a matter of predicting what sorts of experiences you will have, and those predictions could come out true or they could come out false. Uh, another upshot of it is that it tends to support a social engineering approach to uh, economics and politics, because if you can't know for certain ahead of time that certain things definitely will work and certain other things definitely won't, uh, if, if uh, all the statements of economics are empirical, then the only way we can find out whether a certain thing would work is simply to you know, start tinkering with things. Uh, let's, let's try this, let's try that, see if it works or not. And so you might wonder, well, is it that their, uh, their belief, their, their beliefs about knowledge, led them to become more interested in social engineering, or was it that their interest in social engineering led them to you know, find more plausible views about knowledge that would permit them to do that? Uh, you know, it might be some of each. Uh, at least Mises in Human Action suggests he thinks that at least one reason for the popularity of certain kinds of empirical approaches to social science is that it means that you're entitled to dismiss certain kinds of objections that classical liberals have traditionally made to various kinds of government intervention. Uh, classical liberals had said, look, we know that these things won't work. Uh, it's contrary to the basic you know, economic principles. And uh, you know, if you're positive, you can come back and say, well, you know, who knows whether that's true or not? There may, it may be that these timeless laws of the economy that you're talking about are simply you know, local regularities that held for various cultural reasons. Uh, the, um, uh, the German historical school, who are not exactly positivists, they were, I'll be talking about them in a later lecture too, what they had in common with the positivists and what they didn't, but their view was there are no timeless uh, uh, economic laws. There are different laws that apply in different eras, uh, and they're culturally determined, and uh, so the fact that something didn't work in a previous era doesn't guarantee that it won't work uh, in the new one. And that's one aspect that at least uh, lent itself favorably to a positivist approach. For the positivist, you can't just declare dogmatically, no, uh, you know, we shouldn't have minimum wage laws that they will cause unemployment. They'll say, well, well, let's see, maybe in the past there's been a correlation between minimum wage laws and rising unemployment, but We'll have to see whether that regularity still holds. So let's do some more testing. Um, however, there's some problems with this, uh, with this uh, Vienna Circle or logical positivist approach, particularly in the simplistic form that, uh, that caused most of the trouble. Um, one of the problems is this. Take this claim that all statements, or all meaningful statements, are either merely about language use, or if they're about the real world, then they're empirical statements subject to reputation. Okay. Does that claim apply to itself? Uh, if all meaningful statements are, you know, either not about the real world, or they're empirically uh, refutable, then what about the claim that all meaningful statements are either not about the real world, or else they can be empirically refuted. Well, so presumably that statement is supposed to be a meaningful statement. So, is that statement not a statement about the real world? In which case, <coughs> why we have to take it so seriously. It's just proposing some linguistic convention. We can say, well, you know, 
that this linguistic convention doesn't appeal to me. Uh, or if it's empirically refutable or it's, it's truth depends on empirical support, all right, what's the empirical support for it? Where is the empirical evidence that all statements, all, that all statements about the real world can be refuted? Uh, Seems like, in fact, that statement can be refuted if you give some examples of ones that aren't. So the, the fact that the, that the basic dichotomy didn't seem to apply to itself, the basic dichotomy said, you know, all statements are one of two kinds, and then it didn't seem to be clearly belonging to either kind. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, logical positivism fell out of favor in philosophy. And if you do take the, the dichotomy as an empirical claim, then it does seem to be falsifiable. Uh, you know, a lot of the basic propositions of economics uh, you know, seem to be about the real world, and they don't seem to be empirical. Take, for example, the percentage called the expectation of benefit, that no one engages in an exchange unless they expect to benefit, where understanding benefit meaning uh, have their preferences better satisfied as a result of engaging in the exchange than not. It doesn't necessarily mean benefit in some sort of self-interested way. You know, your preference, you know, you might be engaging in exchange in order to buy something that you want to donate to charity or whatever. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean benefit in some specifically personal sense, but in the sense of, of uh, having your preferences more satisfied by engaging in that exchange than not. Uh, so take that claim. No one engages in exchange unless they expect to have their preferences better satisfied with doing it than not. Well, is that an empirical claim? Could that be, you know, do we need empirical evidence for it? And what would count as empirical evidence against it? You'd have to find someone voluntarily doing something that they prefer not to do. Now, of course, there's a sense in which that's possible. There's a sense, you know, we use the word preference in more than one way, and often we say, we talk about doing things we don't want to do. Uh, but in the strict sense in which preference is used in economics, where the preference means you know, the preference that's actually revealed and demonstrated in your action, you know, not just a wish, you often do things you wish you didn't have to do. Um, that's certainly true enough. But uh, the idea that you know, in the sense in which if you're doing something voluntarily, you're not doing it you know, robotically or hypnotized, you're not being forced, but you're choosing to do it, you obviously must, in some sense, prefer doing it to not doing it. Otherwise, it doesn't count as doing it voluntarily. And so it wouldn't make sense to say that you voluntarily entered into exchange that you didn't expect to get what you prefer. Uh, or take... Uh, uh, Menger's idea of the double inequality of wants. If you and I are both voluntarily entering into, into an exchange, then it must be the case that I prefer what I'm getting to what I'm giving up, and you prefer what you're getting to what you're giving up. If I, um, uh, you know, if I buy uh, a burrito for, uh, from you for a dollar, and we both consent to the exchange, then I must prefer the burrito to the dollar, or I wouldn't have bothered to make the exchange, and you must prefer the dollar to the burrito, or you wouldn't have made the exchange. And so in any voluntary exchange, uh, each they have to have sort of inverted in relation to each other their preferences uh, as to which thing they prefer over the other. Now again, is that an empirical claim? Is that something that we need empirical evidence for? Is it something we can imagine empirical evidence against? Uh, doesn't seem like it. Seems as though we just couldn't make sense of uh, an exchange genuinely being voluntary if uh, it weren't the case that each person had those preferences as described. Now, of course, the, the positivists could retreat to saying, well, look, all right, it's not an empirical claim. It's an analytic claim. In that case, it's just a claim about language use. It's not a claim about the world. Well, they can say that if they want, but it certainly seems to apply to the world. It certainly seems to illuminate an understanding of the world. Uh, whatever you want to call them, whether you want to call them analytic statements or synthetic a priori statements or, uh, or something else, whatever they are, they seem to be things that illuminate our understanding of the world, uh, and yet they're not based on or refutable by experience. Or to take another example, marginal utility. Uh, now, the, the law of, margin, of diminishing marginal utility 
has sometimes been confused with something that's called Gossen's Law of Satiation. And there's dispute as to whether the early Austrians confused these two or not. Some people argue yes, some people argue no. But Mises, at least, draws a very sharp distinction between them. Uh, and certainly I've seen you know, descriptions of the law of marginal utility that don't fully distinguish it from Gossen's Law. What's Gossen's Law? Well, Gossen's Law is that... Uh, you know, when there's something you want and you get some and you get some more of it and so forth, after a while, your enthusiasm for it declines. You get satiated and finally, you know, you, know, you don't want any more. So, you know, if you're, if you're hungry, you're, you're pretty hungry and you eat your first burrito and then you're only kind of hungry. And so you eat your second burrito, now you're not hungry anymore. And your third, the third burrito, ugh, no thanks, I don't want any more. Uh, you know, you're... Uh, your enthusiasm for each burrito is less than your enthusiasm for the previous burrito because your, your wants have gotten satiated. Um, now, that's an empirical claim about human nature. It's a claim that's not always true. It's generally true, but certainly not true you know, for addictive substances. If the substance is addictive, then you may have you know, sort of a more desperate want for the third unit of it than the, than the first. But certainly it's true by and large that our... Uh, you know, that the, the intensity of our craving for uh, additional units of something can, you know, can go down as our wants get satiated. But that's not, uh, that empirical claim is not what the law of marginal utility is about. This is an empirical claim about how our preferences can be altered by things we get. But the law of marginal utility is about what's the case when your preferences aren't altered. You know, assume that you've got the same, you know, sort of long-standing preferences. And it simply makes the point that you always apply the first unit of a good you get to your most highly valued use, and you apply the second unit to your second highly most valued use, and so on. And it's got nothing to do with your wants getting satiated. You know, now, as a matter of fact, our wants do tend to get satiated, and that's something that you know, complicates the story. But that's not necessary for the law of marginal utility. Uh, and so uh, you know, we can imagine Gossen's law of satiation being false. In fact, sometimes it is. Uh, we can't imagine the law of marginal utility being false. We can't imagine people who apply their, uh, for the, their first good to their second most highly valued use of it. Uh, you know, if you apply it, you know, whichever one you first apply it to, that must be your most highly valued use or you wouldn't have applied it. Uh, so the Austrian praxeological approach is to start from conceptual truths about the nature of action. Uh, starting with the basic idea that action is the application of means to ends. That action is end-directed, uh, at least action in the sense that economists are interested in it. No, there's a broader sense of action where various sorts of things that aren't end-directed count as, as action. You could talk about the, you know, the action of the acid etching away the metal and so forth. And that's an okay usage of action. You know, but that's not the kind that economists are interested in. When economists talk about action, especially when Austrian economists talk about human action, they mean action that's aimed at an end. It doesn't have to be specifically human. If there are, uh, you know, if there are uh, you know, intelligent Martians out there, um, you know, as long as they're capable of, of uh, choosing means to ends, then uh, economics would apply uh, to them as well. There's a, there's a controversy as to how much of praxeology applies to animals, but I won't get into that. I just plant that in your mind as a, as a puzzle. You know, are their actions end-directed? Some says yes, and some says no. Uh, leave it be for the, for the moment. Um, anyway, this basic idea that action or voluntary action involves the application of means to ends is at the root of uh, the whole Austrian approach uh, to action. Uh, the whole idea of imputation, the idea that the value of the means is determined by the value of the end that you only care about the means because it's going to get you the end. And so the means doesn't have a value except insofar as it serves the end. Uh, you know, that's crucial to understanding um, you know, just about everything in Austrian economics. You know, the whole uh, socialist calculation debate, which uh, I imagine you'll be hearing more about later. But that whole thing is about, the pro about how does imputation work uh, in the absence of a market? And, and the whole understanding of how economic calculation works under a market is how consumer choices uh, uh, enable entrepreneurs to assign rank orders to various means, to various you know, higher order goods or production goods, 
based on the preferences that consumers exhibit for over uh, first order goods or consumption goods, uh, and the uh, you know, the whole understanding of how the market works is a matter of how preferences for consumer goods get translated through the price system into preferences of rank orderings for production goods. And the whole problem of how under a, a socialized economy uh, that, uh, that process is, is stopped, or how under an interventionist economy that process is hindered or distorted in various ways. In fact, the, the whole Austrian theory of money and the business cycles and so forth has to do with how this imputation process can get distorted by various kinds of government intervention. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, the Austrian approach is to start with the nature of action, understood as the application of means to ends, and then all the other economic uh, concepts that get introduced, you know, from you know, whether it's prices or money or uh, rent or interest or all these things, are defined ultimately in terms of these relationships of means and ends. Now, someone could say, okay, so you've got this whole body of conceptual truths about action, but how do you know it applies to the real world? After all, I could come up with a whole body of conceptual truths about unicorns. You know, it's a conceptual truth about unicorns. I suppose that they're shaped like a horse and that they have you know, a horn in the center of their forehead and, um, you know, it's you know, various further things from the legend you could incorporate as conceptual truths. And I could come up with this whole body of interrelated conceptual truths about unicorns, but you might say, well, this is just an idle uh, exercise because there aren't any unicorns. Uh, or likewise, one of the cases of, you know, to take something that perhaps cuts a little closer to home, what about Euclidean geometry? Uh, Euclidean geometry posits this whole body of relationships among uh, you know, various things defined in Euclidean ways, but if it turns out that the space of the real world isn't actually Euclidean, then it turns out we're just sort of playing with concepts and relating them to each other, but, you know, how does any of it get grounded in reality? So someone could say, look, you praxeologists can come up with, you know, an internally consistent set of uh, relations among concepts of action, but how do you know any of it applies to reality? Well, uh, here the answer is the action axiom. Uh, an axiom, at least as it's being used here, is a proposition that we know to be true because you can't coherently deny it, because any attempt to deny it turns out to presuppose it. Uh, the classical example coming from uh, Aristotle is the law of non-contradiction. Uh, you can't deny the law of non-contradiction without presupposing it, because if you deny it, you're saying it's false rather than true. And uh, you know, so you can't say, you know, Nothing is either really true or false or something like that, because by saying that, you're saying that that's true rather than false. Now, there's a complication about that, which uh, Dr. Gordon would no doubt press on me if he uh, were allowed to ask a question, but never mind. Um, then, of course, another famous example is uh, Descartes' principle, I think, therefore I am. Um, uh, your own existence is, is axiomatic for you. In the sense, you can't coherently deny your own existence. You can, Descartes said you can imagine being fooled about various things or mistaken about various things, but you have to be there to be the one who's fooled or mistaken. So you couldn't be fooled or mistaken about your own existence. Another example I'm fond of, a less famous example, comes, also comes from Aristotle. Aristotle says the value of philosophy is something you can't coherently deny. Because if you try to, to deny that philosophy is valuable or argue against philosophy being valuable, you're thereby engaging in philosophical argument. And so you've thereby shown that you think it's okay. Um, well, uh, that's from, uh, that's quoted from one of Aristotle's lost works. We don't actually have the work, but we're, uh, we're told that he asserted that in a, in a work called Protrepticus, um, which means exhortation to philosophy. Uh, well, the action axiom says you can't deny that action in this praxeological sense exists because denying it or trying to refute it or argue against it is itself an action, as uh, was pointed out earlier. So we don't have to uh, worry about um, uh, the possibility that our, you know, that uh, Praxeology might be like Euclidean geometry that doesn't really apply. Now, of course, there are philosophers who think that there are no such things as actions. There are philosophers who think there are no such things as minds uh, or beliefs or desires. Uh, you know, eliminative materialists 
uh, some of them are called. Uh, but uh, Mises would say that their view is incoherent because by the very fact of, of asserting that there are no such things as actions, they're already showing. Uh, they also believe there are no such things as assertions, but that's a problem too, to assert that there are no such things as assertions you've, you know, you've already bought in uh, into the existence of them. Now, I want to mention two common mistakes that uh, critics of praxeology make about it. One is that uh, if you claim, if a praxeologist claims that the truths of praxeology are, are a priori and non-empirical, then they must be claiming some sort of infallibility or irrefutability for them. They must be claiming uh, uh, some sort of a dogmatic assertion that this is absolutely true and, no, and nothing could possibly convince me otherwise. And in fact, uh, I remember Dr. Rako uh, quoted uh, Milton Friedman criticizing Mises precisely for this, saying that if you're, if you're committed who something is being a priori, then you won't be interested in examining the evidence for it or against it. You, uh, you know, nothing will convince you or sway you. You'll just be dogmatic and intolerant and uh, can deal with other people only uh, pugilistically, uh, whether figuratively or literally. Uh, but that's a mistake. And here's the mistake. If I claim that something is a conceptual truth, then I'm claiming that I can't be refuted by empirical means. But I might have made a mistake in my reasoning. I might have made a mistake in, in claiming something as a conceptual truth. And it's perfectly possible for someone to try and argue against me. Similarly, suppose I, I reach some mathematical result by doing mathematical calculations. And for example, suppose I, I proclaim that the square root of something is something. Um, and I claim that I did this. No, I didn't do this. I don't claim that I did this by looking it up on a table. Because then, you know, the empirical test, you can look up on the table, too, and see if I got it right. No, I claim I did it by, by mathematical calculations. So, of course, no empirical test would refute me. But that doesn't mean that I hold that this claim of mine is somehow infallible. I'm perfectly capable of uh, making a mistake in mathematical calculations. You know, in fact, I'm probably more reliable at counting things than I am at calculating them. Um, so, uh, so likewise, when a praxeologist makes an assertion, uh, they're not saying that, um, that nothing could refute them. But they're saying that any criticism you bring has to be a criticism in terms of logical and conceptual reasoning, not a criticism in terms of empirical data. Now, there's a lot of passage from Friedman where he says, well, suppose you can't convince the other person that they've made a mistake in their reasoning. Well, suppose you can't convince the person they made a mistake about their data. I mean, suppose, you know, there's also a possibility you can't convince someone of something. I can't see it has anything to do with whether it's an a priori or an a posteriori issue. Uh, the other mistake of something that's made about praxeology is people claim that praxeologists have some sort of a priori knowledge of history. So, for example, Austrians are sometimes accused of believing it's an a priori truth that the Great Depression was caused by, uh, uh, by uh, federal manipulation of the money supply or... Uh, whatever. Or there's that line from Friedman who said that Mises thought that he had uh, you know, infallible a priori knowledge of the motivations of human action and so on. Well, no. Uh, Austrians don't claim to have a priori knowledge about what historically happened or what anyone's motivations are. Austrians don't, also don't claim to have any knowledge about what the ends of human action are. People can desire all sorts of things. In fact, one of the criticisms Austrians have made of, uh, of mainstream economists and of their forebears, the classical economists, is that other economists often will make assumptions about what people actually want that Austrians think are not warranted. Uh, you know, for example, in the homo economicus model, where you assume that everyone desires profit maximization above all else. And Austrians say, well, not necessarily. I mean, you might desire all sorts of things. You know, there were Buddhist monks who set themselves on fire to protest the Vietnam War. Uh, they're, you know, they were not trying to maximize their monetary profits, as far as I know. Um, maybe there's some odd story to tell, but I don't know that story. Uh, so, um, uh, and it's not, um, no. and take monetary theory. Monetary theory is a priori, but its application isn't. Uh, it's not a priori, you know, 
whether a society even has money. There are societies that don't have money. They just engage in barter. Uh, you have to go and look. You don't know a priori whether they have money or not. What you know is if they have money, then you know certain things about it. If it is money, then, you know, then by definition it's a generally accepted medium of exchange, and so you know that people place a certain value on it and so forth. But of course you don't know a priori which things in society are money. There are no a priori truths about, about little green pieces of paper. You know, we happen to use these little green pieces of paper as money, perhaps unwisely, uh, but uh, you can't tell a priori whether society has money or which things in it are money. You have to go and look. Uh, and if everyone stopped using little green pieces of paper as money, then monetary theory would no longer apply to them. Uh, Mises has a term themology, uh, which is sort of the, the counterpart of praxeology. Themology is not an a priori science. Themology comes from thumos, which is the Greek word for spirit. He, he really wanted to use psychology, but it was already taken, so he uh, took another related uh, Greek word. Uh, themology involves interpretive understanding. Uh, you, know, you could call this, I use the term with caution, you could call this the hermeneutic uh, uh, aspect of uh, the Austrian approach. Uh, it's associated with economic history and with the interpretation of economic actions. Uh, we have to use our understanding to see or figure out what it is that other people are doing. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, you know, likewise, you know, mathematics and ge geometry can't tell you, uh, you know, what, uh, what shape your next piece of pizza is going to be. Geometry can tell you that if it's triangular, then it'll have such and such properties and can go on and on and predict all sorts of properties that your next slice of pizza will have if it's triangular. But it can't predict whether your pizza next slice will be triangular. You know, that's up to the uh, vicarious of the real world. Uh, and so likewise... Uh, you know, praxeology can't predict whether people actually will choose to use any particular thing or anything at all as a generally used medium of exchange. Um, but if they do, then praxeology can tell uh, various things about, you know, so long as something is used as a generally accepted medium of exchange, you can predict certain things about what happens if the supply of it increases or decreases or uh, whatever. And finally, one of the disputes about praxeology is, so what is the status of these conceptual truths? Uh, I mentioned before there's dispute of whether these are simply tautologies like uh, all bachelors are unmarried or whether there's something uh, more to them. Uh, Mises took a, something of a Kantian approach, and there's a dispute about exactly how to interpret what Mises said, but Mises uh, often writes as though uh, these laws are determined by the structure of our minds. And so our minds somehow filter all our experience in such a way that we couldn't experience anything that didn't conform to the laws of economics. And so then the question is, well, does that mean that there could be rational beings who engaged in, in, uh, you know, in economic action in ways that, that the laws of praxeology didn't apply to, but given the structure of our minds, we'd never be able to experience them? Uh, just as some people interpret Kant, although it's controversial how to interpret Kant, too. But Kant said we necessarily experience the world as spatiotemporal and causal because the innate structure of our mind necessarily categorizes all its data in spatiotemporal and causal terms, leaving open the possibility that the real world might not be spatiotemporal at all. Um, now, there's a dispute over whether that's what Kant meant, and there's a dispute over whether that's what Mises meant. Um, Rothbard, at least, uh, wasn't comfortable with Mises' way of putting it. Rothbard was more of an Aristotelian, and Rothbard thought that, uh, that these laws were laws of reality, not just laws of thought, that, they, that we discover them by looking at reality, so that they are, as he put it, in a very broad sense empirical. Uh, but uh, the way in which they're empirical is different from the kinds of things you have to do statistics for, or tests, and so forth. They're just things you sort of recognize by just sort of confrontation with ordinary human experience. And there have been many other theories. If you look at some of the, uh, uh, the ones up there at the top, there have been all sorts of different approaches as to uh, uh, you know, in what sense, you know, how do we come to know them? Do we know them by introspection? Do we know them by, uh, by conceptual reasoning or whatever? But... Uh, and those are interesting philosoph philosophical questions. And so as a philosopher, I'm interested in those questions. But 
the answering those questions isn't crucial to, uh, to validate the Austrian approach. Because after all, there's a lot of dispute about exactly what the status of mathematical reasoning is, too. Are numbers real things that exist independently of us? Is there really such things as three and four? Or are they human constructs? Or what? Does, does, the three, does threeness exist off in Platonic Heaven? Or does threeness exist only as encountered in actual trios? Or does threeness exist only in our minds? Well, again, those are important philosophical questions. But we don't have to answer them in order to understand that mathematics is some kind of founding in reality, and it works. Uh, and so likewise, uh, you know, the questions that are raised about the, the nature of praxeology are really not that different from the statement, questions that are raised about the nature of logic and mathematics. Okay, questions? Yes? Does praxeology assume rational agents? Well, it depends what you mean by rational. Uh, there's a minimal sense of rationality where you count as rational so long as uh, you are applying means to ends, and you apply the means to the ends that you believe will bring it about. In that sense, rational agency is necessary for any kind of agency at all, uh, in that sense. So in that sense of rational, um, uh, then you know, praxeology applies only to rational agents. But if you want a richer, fuller sense of rationality, where in order to be rational, you've got to have, you know, reasonable views about what ends are worth pursuing and reasonable views about uh, what means are likely to get them to you, then in that case, no, praxeology doesn't assume that. You could have crazy ends or crazy beliefs about the means to ends, and you could change your beliefs every minute. You, know, you could have, uh, you know, right now you might think that the, you know, what you most want is to become the most famous person on earth, and the way to do it is to shave your head. And then right after you do it, then you might think that what you most want is to become the least famous person on earth, and the way to do it is to paint your head green. And you do that, and you know, your views of what means and ends are constantly changing. But you'd count as rational in the narrow sense that at any given moment, you are applying the means you believe will work to whatever end you believe at that moment is worth pursuing. So in that narrow sense of rationality, you're rational, and that's all that praxeology uh, cares about. Uh, there are richer senses of rationality that are Interesting for other purposes. Yes? Are there other types of a-priori methods? Other than, say, Well, I guess mathematics is not a priori method. It's interesting that, uh, that we like, uh, we like a priorism, but we don't like mathematics so much in our, um, in our economics. But the reason for that is that our understanding of the nature of action is such that a lot of with mathematics isn't really all that relevant because it doesn't uh, involve sort of quantifiable relationships. Praxeology has to do with a priori truths about human action, uh, whereas mathematics is, I guess, a priori truths about quantities and quantitative relationships. Uh, you know, they, they intersect supposed to this extent, that uh, if... Um, if I'm doing an action, you're doing an action, then there are at least two actions. So that's an application. That's a permissible Austrian application of mathematics to praxeology. <laughs> yes. I forgot to repeat the other questions, but I'll repeat this one. Um, there's a little sign here saying, please repeat questions that I, I disobeyed it earlier. Um, so the question is, uh, David Friedman in his uh, economic textbook says that you have to assume certain uh, empirical things about people's preferences because uh, otherwise we can't make predictions about, about the effects of various, um, uh, of various laws. I think that it's partly true. Here's the sense in which it's partly true. I think that when, when the Austrians talk about economic theory, they mean something narrower than sometimes what, uh, what non-Austrians mean by economic theory. Because we talk about theory on the one hand, the praxeology. On the other hand, we talk about 
the application of it uh, in history and themology and so on. And uh, some of the things that we call the application of the theory, some mainstream, some mainstreamers I think would just call more, uh, more theory. It's certainly true that in applying a theory, you have to make various empirical assumptions that, uh, that, uh, you know, that may be wrong. Um, now, uh, the question is, you know, which ones and how many? And uh, Guido Hussman makes a nice point about minimum wage laws. That strictly speaking, what we know on the basis of praxeology is not that minimum wage laws will make unemployment higher than it was before, but rather makes unemployment higher than it would otherwise have been. Because, of course, you know, all kinds of empirical assumptions about people's, about people's motivations are, you know, you know, could be wrong, in which case we might, you know, it, there's not, nothing rules out uh, people changing their preferences after you introduce the minimum wage law. And once they change their preferences, then it might be that unemployment will go down after minimum wage law. Um, but uh, keeping the preferences fixed, uh, you know, and assuming those preference changes, if they happened, would have happened anyway, then what we know praxeologically is that uh, that uh, unemployment will be higher than it was before. Um, again, unless the unless the the changes in preferences are actually caused by that. I might be someone who says, "I will I will pay five dollars an hour unless." No, I, no, I will hire 10 people unless the minimum wage law goes up, and then I will hire 20 people. Suppose I just have that preference. Well, if I just have that preference, um, you know, then I'll, uh, 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 then my, that will cause, then, then I will be caused to want to hire more people by going up. Um, and so that's an, uh, that's an exception, but uh, Guido deals with that in a footnote. Yes? Uh, I've noticed in my limited study more of an emphasis in the Austrian school on Aristotle as opposed to Plato, and I've seen uh, or suppose almost a rejection of Plato result of his views in the Republic, but it seems like Plato and, and you know, by extension Socrates are sort of the original a priori uh, philosophers. So I'm, I'm sort of confused why there isn't more of an emphasis on Plato and the, uh, Plato and the application Okay, so the question is, uh, Austrians seem to emphasize Aristotle more than Plato, perhaps because they don't like Plato's uh, political proposals in the Republic, but Plato seems to have, be a, you know, a big a priori guy. Shouldn't we like him more? Well, actually, I do, uh, I do think Plato is an important influence in the praxeological tradition. If you look at the, you know, the Platonic dialogues, over and over it's talking about the, especially the early Socratic dialogues, over and over it's talking about the implications of the fact that people pursue ends by applying means. And the, the whole idea of the means getting their value from the end and, what, and, and what's implied by the application of means to ends and so forth is uh, uh, the entire Socratic ethical system is, uh, is based on this. So, yeah, I like Plato. I mean, I don't like his, uh, his uh, you know, at least most of his uh, uh, politics, but uh, I think in his, um, you know, I think he was... You know, he was an early praxeologist, and and the praxeological elements in Aristotle mostly come from Plato, and then from there they pass, you know, on into the scholastic tradition, and later on into the continental subjectivist economic tradition, and on to the uh, Austrian. So yeah, I'm happy to claim Plato as a founding father. Yes. Well, the man sitting next to you would probably supply it, but uh, the um, not that he is a, an opponent of the law of non-contradiction. But there's sort of a at least a simple version of Aristotle's argument that you know you might think doesn't work, which is um, you might think, well, if someone believes in the law of non-contradiction, and that they may that they're asserting that the law of non-contradiction is false rather than true, then they aren't they showing that they really accept the law of non-contradiction after all, and the you know the possible complication is someone could say, well look, I never said all uh, contradictions are true, only that some are. So that the, all I'm saying is that the law of non-contradiction has some exceptions. And so when I say the law of non-contradiction is false rather than true, uh, that is sometimes false rather than universally true, that isn't itself one of those cases. Um, 
Now, I don't think I don't think that argument works because uh, it um, uh, well, it may work against sort of a simplistic version of the argument, but I think then Aristotle can come back and say, look, all right, you can say those words, but what does it really mean? If you really think about what it means to assert something, uh, you know, assert it rather than denying it, it's, it's not clear how it can make sense in any case uh, to, you know, sort of simultaneously assert it and deny it. Uh, or more recent analogy some people have used is, you know, how when you're, when you're playing chess, you haven't really completed the move until you let go of your piece, and a person who wants to assert something with the same thing wants to deny it hasn't really made any assertion at all, I think Aristotle would say. He's just he's moving his piece, but he's still keeping his hand on it, which means he wants to say, look, I've both moved and not moved. In fact, he just hasn't, you know, hasn't made any uh, assertion. So I think Aristotle has a way out of that. But I think that at least some of the simpler ways in which Aristotle's point is put uh, uh, are open to uh, this objection that uh, people sometimes treat it as though the, the advocate of of contradictions thinks that all contradictions are true, and although some advocates of contradictions may think that, uh, most don't. Yes? Well, there was um, uh, uh, there was a movement of uh, a hermeneutical approach to uh, Austrian economics that was uh, uh, popular in the late 20th century with people like uh, the late Don Lavoy, uh, and that, that movement may still have some adherents. I haven't kept up with it. Um, there's, you know, the um, uh, I think the grain of truth in it is that, that there is a hermeneutical aspect uh, in Austrian. There. The question was about the uh, uh, about um, how praxeologists deal with the hermeneutical traditions' um, uh, worries about the possibility of, of objective nature and so on. Um, now, there's a hermeneutical aspect, but I think it comes in the application of praxeology, not in uh, praxeology itself. Um, the uh, I think that you know, sort of. The more moderate versions of the hermeneutical claims, uh, the more moderate versions are, are often you know, acceptable but consistent with praxeology. I think the more extreme claims uh, don't hold up. Uh, for example, I think that uh, I think people like Lavoy were right that you need some hermeneutical experience in order to be able to formulate praxeological laws. I think that's true. You know, just like you need some experience in order to be able to formulate, you know. Two plus two equals four. Uh, unlike Ibn Sina, I don't think you could just do that as a, you know, as an infant floating in a sensory deprivation tank. But as Kant said, from the fact that all, uh, from the fact that knowledge begins with experience, it doesn't follow that all begins from experience. And so, likewise, I would say, from the fact that our knowledge be, you know, or that some of our knowledge begins with sort of humanistical understandings and so forth, doesn't mean that it depends on them in the way that some of the more radical hermeneutics thought. Um, but it would take me too far afield to say much more than that right now. Yes? Well, I might be up to when you say positivism is justified. Um, I mean, it's certainly true that, you know, whether a particular branch of praxeology is applicable to a particular thing, like, for example, whether monetary theory is applicable to, you know, the little village of, of, of uh, Hemlock there, uh, depends on the empirical discovery of whether they use money or whether they just do nothing but barter. Um, and that's an empirical fact. Of course, it's not an empirical fact in the sense that we, we can find out anything about it by sort of doing positivist-type measurements. We have to do this sort of, you know, what Mises called Feshtay, and we have to understand, by putting ourselves in their shoes, try to understand the nature of their actions to figure out if they have money. So it's not really the kind of 
a philosophist approach that they wanted. But still, once you figure out empirically whether they have money, then, you know, then all the laws of monetary theory come into place. There's this wonderful line from Hazlitt at the end of um, Economics in One Lesson, where he says you've got all this, this whole system uh, like electric current, and as soon as, you, you know, as soon as you plug one part of it into reality, the whole thing lights up. So as soon as, uh, as, soon as we find money in this village, it's fine that they are indeed using money, then you know, the, whole, the whole system of monetary theory lights up and applies to them. But say that we have to, yeah, we have to go and look in order to, uh, to see whether they have money, it doesn't seem to be a great concession to positivism. I think of one of my colleagues, uh, Mike Watkins, who works on uh, the metaphysics of color, and someone was saying, well, it's a, I don't, you know, shouldn't this really be a question for scientists? Isn't it an empirical issue whether color exists? And his answer was, well, sure, it's an empirical issue. I have to open my eyes to see. And the other guy was very disgruntled, because by empirical he meant you know, something involving equipment. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Thinking and Doing, a podcast where I examine logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoic teachings, and tips on being better at life. You can rate and review this podcast in your podcast app, and please share it with everyone you know. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EVC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary.